As I begin this morning, I just want to make just two off-the-record comments. First of all, this morning I'm wearing the garters that Glenn and Lois have given me. There it is. So in case I stomp the foot. Let me tell you something. I commiserate with all of you old people who have to wear these things. It took me ten minutes just to figure out how to get it on. So for those of you who have enjoyed drooping socks, you no longer have that pleasure. And if you're upset about that, see Lois and Glenn Moscow. It's their fault. Uh, And then, secondly, just wanted to take a moment as a personal comment. Uh, Don't start that thing yet. You you go back and continue our study in the Gospel of John, I want to make sure we do it the way John has set out by the leading of the Holy Spirit to do it. This isn't John's decision. This is the Holy Spirit's leading, anointing, revealing to John of how to write this letter. This letter is written by the Holy Spirit of God himself to us, the church. Amen. And so as we look at this, we're not looking at what some man years ago in a cave on an island wrote. We're looking at a letter that is authored by the God of glory, filled with his presence and power. For the effectiveness of the gospel in our lives as in the lives of every believer throughout the ages. Unless, therefore, when we continue to study it this morning and for the weeks and weeks ahead of us, study it with the purpose of God firmly held in mind. Now, do you remember the great verse that pens the purpose of God? Chapter How many of you, if I ask you to stand to tell me the chapter and verse, how many of you could do that? Now look, this should not happen again. Seriously, this should not happen again. You need to get what God is saying. Chapter 20, verse 31. Chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written... Why? Why are these written? Why are we studying it? Why has the Holy Spirit anointed this letter? Why? That we may believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, Messiah, Holy One, Anointed One, Savior, comma, the Son of of God, that believing you may have life in His name. Now, that's what this is all about. You must remember this. You must know this. It's a huge hindrance to us to not get the Word the way God presents the Word And desires us to receive the word. 
If we don't receive it the way God gives it, it is a huge hindrance to us. So let's not be a church that continues to forget. What is the purpose? John chapter 20, verse 30 kind of gives you some things there about what he's done. But then verse 31 really is the purpose. I've written this stuff that you can know that Jesus saves. He's the Son of God. Jesus is the mighty Savior, and He is the mighty Son of God. And believing that, then you can have life in His name. Right? That's the purpose. You see, Judaism is a monotheistic religion. You know what mono means? One theism means what? Something about God. Judaism is a religion that believes that God is one. Remember the great creed of Judaism. The great creed of Judaism. If you ask them, and maybe even today, what is the great creed? It will be the Shema O Israel. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, Yahweh our God. Remember, I am that I am in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Tell them that I am hath sent you, Yahweh. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Monotheism, one. And so as Jesus is ministering and speaking, his claim is flying into the face of this most sacred understanding and revelation about God. This is the most sacred understanding and revelation about God in the Old Testament. That God is one. And what Jesus is doing and the way he is speaking and handling himself flies in their minds into the face of this. And it looks to them like Jesus is promoting polytheism. That he is promoting himself to be another God along with God so that there would be essentially two gods. What's the problem? Was Jesus, in fact, doing this? No. Well, where is the confusion? You see, the confusion is in the word one. That's where the confusion lies. You see, most of us, if we were to ask, what does the word one mean in relation to that particular um, uh, scripture? We would say the issue has to be with singularity, single, one. But that's incorrect. The word one there hasn't anything to do with singularity. It has everything to do with unity. It has everything to do with unity as expressed in such a way as to be one. Did you get that? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. doesn't mean that God is a single being like Allah is one. It means that God exists in unity as a triune being. Now, that's important to get because this hits the very central issue of the nature of God himself and of his character. You see, Jesus is not promoting himself to be another God. He is saying that I am the same God as Deuteronomy 6.4. 
And so this whole section, what we dealt with a couple of weeks ago and what we'll deal with today and what I think Matt will continue in a couple of weeks to deal with in this section up to at least probably verse 30 is the most crucial issue in Christianity because it deals with the very nature and character of God. And we don't want to go wrong here. Now, this morning, we don't have enough time to go into very much detail. I don't have the ability anyway, and we're going to skip through this pretty quickly, but at least to present something to us concerning the very essential nature and character of God. This morning, John chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, Jesus explains how two equal persons can live in unity. How can two Equal persons live in unity. This morning we'll hear about that. So let's read these verses. John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Remember, Jesus is responding to the accusation that they want to kill him because he's making himself equal with God because of the issues which we discussed two weeks ago. So if you're not clear on that, you must get that particular sermon and put it together with this one and you can track along perhaps a little better. Therefore, verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own initiative unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the very same way or in like manner. Verse 20. Because the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Father, reveal yourself to us this morning in a way that we've never seen you before. Father, would you give us much greater understanding and appreciation and experience of who you are and how you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at verse 19 first. Verse 19, I believe, sets out the proposition that two equals can live in unity. So let's look at Jesus' explanation of the equality which is existing in the Godhead. Now, what I'd like to do in verse 19 is take the second part of the verse first and then go to the first part. So let's look at the second part of verse 19 first. It begins with whatever the Father does. Do you see where I am? So we're taking verse 19 and flip-flopping it, if you would. So the second part of verse 19, Jesus explains his equality with God. He shows that he's equal with God. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Now, that's a flat-out statement That I am God himself. You see, only a person who is as divine as God could do the same things that God does. 
He doesn't say, I do just a few things or I almost do everything, but whatever the Father does, I also do in like manner. Whatever the prerogatives of the Father and the ability and the power of the Father, he says, I have the same. And so in saying this, in asserting this, he is asserting his absolute, eternal, complete divinity. So that's the statement, I believe, of his divinity. Now, let's look back at verse 19 again, and let's look at the first part of it. Because the first part begins to describe how this equality functions. And this is crucial. You see, this is where no other religion is close to Christianity. When they tell you it doesn't matter as long as you believe in God, don't believe it. When they tell you that the God of Islam and the God of Jehovah's Witness and the God of the Mormons and Buddha and what are some of these other characters out there, we all worship the same God. They are lying to you. There is only one unique revelation of God. It began in Judaism and it is brought to fruition of understanding and fulfillment in its great power and effectiveness in our lives in Christ himself, in Christianity. You see, what should have happened is Judaism should have continued until Jesus was born, went to the cross, died, resurrected. And then Judaism, as the main way of God revealing himself on earth, should have, it does cease so. But all the Jews should have then become Christians if they really believe what the Old Testament was telling them. But of course, you remember, they rejected it. No other religion has this issue in it that we're going to talk about because it is inconceivable to the mind of man. Why do I know that? Because it was if it were conceivable to the mind of man to have put this together, then man would have had a religion that has these issues in it. But they're not there except in Christianity. So the first part of verse 19 Shows us how Jesus relates to God as an equal. How does it happen? Truly, truly, I say to you, when Jesus says, Amin, Amin, it means of the truth, of the truth, or verily, verily, I say to you. He says, this is significant. So anytime you see Amin, Amin, Amen, Amen, we say Amen, it means very important statement from Jesus. And here's what he says. Listen to what I'm telling you. This is crucial. The son, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. How can two equals live in unity? Because Jesus is the humble, submitted son to the father's will and purpose. Because of Jesus' submission. Because of his humility. Because of his Refusal to act independently of God's will and thus deny himself. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, where Paul speaks about this. How can two equals live in unity and in peace? 
and get anything done? Because their relationship must be of one submitting to the other. Two equals. And here's what Paul says in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He isn't going for leadership. He isn't going to try to take over. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, that's the essence of the nature of the Godhead. You see, the very unity of the Godhead is possible And the very existence of who God is, is possible only because God the Son relates to God the Father in humility of volitional, free will, joyful submission. You see, Jesus' submission didn't begin when he was born of Mary and then he decided to take up the cross and go to Calvary and die. It's not when Jesus' submission began. The incarnation isn't the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It is the um, uh, submission. It is the revelation of Jesus' submission and it is the outworking effectiveness in our lives, of what the submission of the Son of God will do in our lives and for the rest of eternity. You see, the nature of God, the very nature of God is demonstrated in the unity of the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This morning, we will not talk about the Holy Spirit except in passing. We will deal with the Holy Spirit and His function in the Trinity back in, uh, when we get to chapters 14, 15, and 16 of John. So we'll get there one day. So for those of you who are worried about the Holy Spirit, we haven't relegated Him to a secondary class. We're just not there yet. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Three equal persons living in the Godhead in perfect unity, sharing absolute power, absolute substance, absolute essence. So the nature of God is demonstrated in the unity of the three divine and equal persons of the Godhead as expressed through their distinct roles. You see, the Father initiates, He begins, He decides, He commissions. He sends, and the Son joyfully receives that leadership and responds to that leadership in humble submission called obedience. You see, biblical, godly obedience is joyful, humble submission of leadership. That's what obedience is. If our obedience to the Lord is not humble and joyful, it is legalism. Our submission, our obedience to what God leads in our lives and through the various ways that He leads in our lives must be within the same character that Jesus Himself 
the, uh, the way he himself submits to God. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it joyfully. Remember the verses in Hebrews chapter 12. What does it say? For the joy that was set before him, the great joy of Jesus. Joy to do what? To be the Father's servant. To be the Father's submitted son. To obey the Father. The joy of Jesus to do that. And the result this morning is our salvation. And our sanctification. And it will result in our glorification in heaven. That's what we get through the submission of the Son of God. You remember the very first words that is recorded about Jesus? Remember the first words that are recorded about Jesus? Remember those? In Luke chapter 2, verse 49, remember the family, Jesus is about 12 years old, and they all go up to Jerusalem for the festival, and they're all coming back. They went in large numbers. We just didn't do two or three people together. We have a large group of people going down there, and they're going up to Jerusalem, they're going home. And Mary and Joseph, you know, assume Jesus is maybe some of his cousins or whatever else. You know, it's just like Keith and Gina going somewhere. You're bound to lose somebody in that crowd. And so, you know, so here they all trucking away from Jerusalem. And a couple, three days later, somebody said, ah, where's Jesus? Can you imagine losing your son whom the angel has said he will be the savior of the world? I mean, what would be the burden on Mary in that? I can't believe I flubbed this one up. It would be better if I had done a whole lot of other things. And they go back and hunt for Jesus and they find him sitting in the temple with all these scribes and Pharisees and priests and all these learned men. And what does Jesus say? He says, why are you upset? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? I must be about my father's business. Even as a 12 year old, he knew something of the heart of submission. This is his first words to mankind. Submission, humility, service, obedience is the very first message and the very first preaching and gospel record that Jesus gives to us. You see, there is no gospel outside of the humble submission and obedience of the Son of God. This is the heart of how the gospel works and is powerful today and forever. Amen? This is the heart of the gospel. Remember some of these words, John 4, 34. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 12, 49 and 50. The father himself who sent me has given me command. I speak just as the father has told me. John 14, 16 and 28. I will ask the father. You see, he needs to get permission. And the father is greater than I. Not greater in essence, but greater in his leadership role. Meaning that father is the team leader. See, this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses go wrong. Aha, you see, that means that God is God and Jesus isn't. They miss the whole thing because they're trying to naturally discern this rather than being submitted to what the Word says and receiving the revelation of the Holy Spirit in truth. You see, what happens when we try to dig into this Word just with our natural minds not being regenerated by the Holy Spirit? You see, Jesus submits to the Father as an equal with the Father. You see, in our natural dispositions, we believe that equality means that both can do and should do the same things and the same ways. 
That's not what equality is with God. Equality of essence and of power and of substance and of eternality. Absolute equality. But different in the way they relate or function. So how does this relate to us? How does it relate to us that the Father is the leader and Jesus is the submitted Son? Remember what Second Peter verses, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 say. I'm just going to read them. You may turn to there. You may not need to. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4. Listen to these words. Seeing that His, God, God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. You must know Him, who He is and how He is, who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. Why? Why has He done this? In order that by them you might be partakers of the divine nature. In order that we might begin to be clothed with the very nature and character of God. So that in our relationships, we may be a clear and compelling demonstration Of who God is and how He is. This is the glory of God. Who He is and how He is, is His glory. It's His nature and His character. This is the glory of our God. You see, this is why we were saved. To be visible demonstrators within these mounds of clay. Of the most unique And the most radical and the most sensational revelation that could be. This is a scandal that God would affiliate himself with such as we. And yet he has because of his passion to demonstrate his greatness and his glory. You see, we were saved and clothed with God's nature to express his nature through our relationships. Now, how we do this speaks the most loudly of the truth about who God is and how God is. Or it speaks the most dangerous lie about who God is and how God is. How we walk out our relationships with one another within the church and outside of the church is the most important function of a believer as he is a worshiper of God. Because the way we relate within the context of the body of Christ and to the world will be the loudest gospel and preaching. That's who God is and how He is. That's who God is and how He is. Why? Because we have been clothed with the very nature of God and have been given the very character of God. And so it's critical. It's absolutely critical the way we live. See, this is why relationship difficulties and sin and all of that stuff is so dangerous. Not because of what it's going to do to us, but because of what it says about our God. Do you see this this morning? It is critical, not because of what it does to us, although it is damaging to us, but what it says about our God. So we can be the greatest truth bearers or the greatest liars on earth. We have the potential to be one or the other. And there is no middle ground, I believe. 
We either will speak the truth in the way we live, or we will speak a lie in the way we live. Remember Romans 8, 29. We have been saved, remember, that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Conformed to the image of Jesus. Jesus' humble submission as an equal with God. Now, I am not saying we are equals with God. We do not now have the nature as intrinsic into us. We have been clothed with the nature. We will never be equal with God. But we must relate to one another within the same context that God the Son relates to God the Father. If we're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. How does this work out in our relationships in the church? What what, what is the practicality of this? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Paul has just spent three chapters giving us one of the greatest revelations the world has ever seen. That for which Moses and Abraham and everybody in the Old Testament who was godly would have given their lives to see. The culmination of the work of God through the resurrection, which is what? The church. Amen? The church is the greatest revelation of the nature and character of God that the world has or ever will see. We, the body of Christ. Look at the responsibility we bear, but yet look at the joy that we have. And so what does Paul say after giving three chapters of doctrine? Now he says, put it into practice. How are you going to put everything we know into practice? How will we be the living expression of the Son of God's relationship to God the Father himself? He says this, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord... I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel with which you have, to which you have been called. How to walk? Walk in humility, gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says, we must be If we are going to be a people who speak and declare the truth about who God is and how he is, it is absolutely centrally critical to walk in unity. To walk in unity. It is the most fundamental issue of relationship in the church. Unity. It is the most fundamental relationship within the church. The unity of the church. Listen to these words words in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, as Paul continues to instruct the church in Philippi. He says, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, the unity Intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is how Jesus lived. And this is how he continues to live in the face of the Father in the Trinity forever. How does it work out in our marriages? How does this 
extraordinary revelation of the unity of the Godhead equals functioning in roles, one leading and the other submitting. And in doing so in such a way that these persons of the Godhead are in such unity that God is literally one being. Is that a mystery? I mean, anybody can figure that out and tell us all about it and how it works. But for the first hundred years after the uh, first century, this was the arguing point and the battleground, the issue of the Trinity for a hundred or so years after the first century. This is critical of how we understand this and how we live it. First Corinthians 11, three and four. Listen to these verses. First Corinthians 11, three and four. This flies into the face of all this ERA and uh, and liberation stuff, theology or whatever it is, and politics in today's world. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Oh, wow. Headship. Ooh. Wait, wait. You mean? Wait. Mm. You see, if you were to look at Galatians 3.28, what does Galatians 3.28 say? All of us in Christ are absolutely what? Come on, I can't hear you. Equal. Thank you for knowing the verse. Galatians 3.28. You see, Galatians 3.28 is used by some in the church to say, Aha, you see, aha, I got you now. It's equality of roles. Therefore, one shouldn't have to always lead and the other have to be all of the, the, uh, the, 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 the submitted one. But it can be interchangeable roles. Paul is not talking about roles in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Go back and read it. It is a to be verb. It is a, 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 a comment of position and status. It's not a position of a word of activity. It is they are equal. That's not an action verb. It's a to be verb. You remember your transitive and intransitive verbs and predicate nominatives and uh, yeah. okay. so just get the grammar right. Equal. Everybody in here who is a believer is absolutely, completely before God and before one another. Equal. Amen. Ain't nobody better than the other or higher than the other. Amen? Get it? Equality. And if it's not that way, it does not express the truth of God. What about marriages? Oh, I know some men who believe they're better than their wives or wives who believe they're better than their husbands and husbands who think their wives are better and wives who think that this is not God. Listen to these words in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 25. Wives, be subject, submitted, submission, humility to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. He is the authority of the wife. Now, may we stop there and say it one more time. This is the declared word of God Almighty Why? Because he is passionate about it to show that in the marriage relationship and every other relationship within the church, his own nature. If we go wrong on this, the problem is it's not just we get some misfunction, but we begin to disrupt the revelation of who God is. So, ladies, get it. If you are going to walk in godliness and in truth, 
And if you were going to walk as a woman of God to receive the blessings of God and be effective in the Holy Spirit, you must get this. Problem is that society out there where that slinking, slithering, slimy snake has his way. But in this congregation and in the body of Christ, Holy Spirit has to have his way. Amen? Let us not give in to that out there and be a hindrance. Let us be a people who do and live for the glory of God. For the husband is the head of the wife. In the same way, Christ also is the head of the church, He Himself being the Savior of the body. There's so much to talk about. We're just going to have to fly through this. And I apologize for having been doing it so quickly. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in... In what? I can't hear you. In what? How much? Everything. Now, there's a lot to say about that. We won't say it. And I know a lot of you women are thinking about it. And I commiserate with you. But we won't say it. But this is what we will say. The wife's submission to her husband as his equal. They work. The wife's submission. Husbands, listen to me. Your wife is an equal heir with you in the kingdom of God. Any of you men who think for a moment that you are higher or more important than she is, you are lying about God Himself. Can I say it any stronger? Let's get it straight. Equals. Why? Because God in Himself is three equal beings. So the wife's submission to her husband as his equal testifies to the son's submission to the father as his equal as she represents the church's submission to Christ. I don't like these things, man. They bother me. Ephesians chapter 5, verses... Oh, I have it wrong up there. Verses 22 to 24, I think. Right, Bill? Yeah. I saw you groaning over there for some reason. I understand that. Verses 25, verse, chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives. Oh, oh, okay. Now listen how. In the very same way that Christ loved the church. Well, how did he do that? He gave himself up for her. How long do I have to put up with her dripping attitude? Until you die. Now, that may accelerate your death. (laughs) How are we men to live with these jewels? These precious daughters of God. Let a man mistreat one of my granddaughters and he got a problem on his hand. Men, if I feel that way, How does God feel about the way we might be treating His precious daughters? If it burns me to think that anyone would be in any way mishandling one of my girls, there's just no telling how God feels about this. Because I ain't near the passion of God on anything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, how he gave himself up for her. That, why did he give himself up? Why is he this way to serve her 
this way, loving leadership, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present unto himself the church in all her glory. Man, this is our purpose before God as a husband. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy and blameless. You see, the husband's leadership of his wife as her equal. Ladies, I don't care how dumb he is, and he can't talk a whole lot well, and he doesn't understand a whole lot of things, and he gets confused, and when he comes home at night and you ask him, what happened during the day? He says, (sighs) you know, I don't care how much of a blockhead he may be, or even seem to be. I know how blockheads are, you know. Gene can tell you. What, what, what happened today? Whom did you meet with? Hmm. Did I even have any meetings today? <laughs> any of you wives have this kind of issue with your husband that they don't know anything when they get home? Don't think you're his superior. You're lying about God. I don't care what differences there are in your personality, your intelligence, your background, anything else. It makes nothing, no difference to the Holy Spirit. You are equal to Him. He is equal to you. So don't you go strutting around and telling this man what to do and how to live. You're on dangerous ground. Dangerous ground. You're insulting the very nature of God Himself. The husband's leadership of his wife as her equal testifies to the son's submission to the father as his equal. As the father, as the husband represents Christ's leadership over the church, which is the father's will. How is this to work out in our families? Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents as in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long upon the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Daddies, it is our responsibility to raise and train our children to be men and women of God who reflect the very nature and character of God within the family and especially to train them to be godly men as loving leaders of their families and godly women to be lovingly, respectfully submitted to their husbands so that God is honored in all things. That's your purpose as a parent. Not always to get A's and B's on a test. Can I hear amen? And I taught school. I was a school teacher. Never was enamored with all these A's and B's. Much more enamored with the character of the child. Raise them up to reflect the character of God and the nature of God. And you've done a great thing in the kingdom of God. Make that the issue for your raising your children. How is it to work out on the job? How many of us have lousy leaders? How many of us have a problem with the people over us at work, bosses or leaders? How many of us? Anybody in here? Am I the only one who has a problem with Keith's leadership over me? You do see my hand is raised. (laughs) This is my opportunity to make a statement. How many of you bosses have problems with them whom you're trying to lead? You're not raising your hand, huh? Don't lie, brother. (laughs) You don't want to be accused of being a liar. A liar. (laughs) 
That's an inside joke. You don't have to worry about that one. It's not a good joke, but it is a joke. Listen, employees, slaves, employees, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ is always having to do with God's nature and character. Always. 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 Not by eye service or men pleases, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Why is the will of God? Because in your submission, you are showing who Christ is in the Father's presence. Let me go to the next verse. I think I, oh, verse 9. And masters, employers, do the same things to them and give them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Well, how can this unity function? How can it practically function? This has to do with the character of God, how it practically functions. How can it function if one is the head and the other is the submitted? How can it function when all of us being equal have such a diversity of opinions and experiences and expressions and attitudes and sin and everything else? How can a body of Christ or a husband and wife How can two walk together in unity as absolute equals? How can this work? Well, this expresses the character of God. The nature of God is His unity. The great triune eternal being and the roles within the unity. But the character of God, how God is, who He is, but now how He is. How can two equals Live in unity? How can we do it? What's the answer? Loving each other. Biblically loving each other. Not putting up. Not just, mm, you know, grinding your teeth. But making a decision day by day to refuse to give in to sin when it touches your heart. When you were treated in a way you didn't like. To say no to sin. I will not dishonor my God. I will choose to love. Did I say anything about following your feelings in that? No. Follow the truth of God. And let us be men and women of God who rise up against sin and temptation and begin to live the way God intends us to live. And then the power of God will flow out of here all kind of ways. So look at verse 20. This is the how. John chapter 5, verse 20. We're back in John again. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him that you may be amazed. You see, there are no secrets in the Godhead. There's no competition. There's no distrust. There's no strife, there's no friction, there are no fights, no anger, no frustration, etc., etc. There's none of this within the Godhead. What is it doing in us, in the church? None of this exists in the Godhead. This is all sin. 
It's all sin. What is sin? Sin is a direct flank attack against the truth of who and how God is. And the devil doesn't matter, care how it works out, as long as he can attack the central issue of the nature and character of God. It's all sin. Let's check out our lives, our feelings, our emotions, what's happening on the inside of me in my relationships within the church and to the world. And any of these and all the other stuff that we don't even have time, we don't have pages enough to write down all the ways that we feel and experience and what happens to us, all of that is sin. And all of it is to be rejected violently and quickly and completely. How can it happen with three equals live together in unity? Each loves the other. The father's love, what is shown as he shows the son all things that he himself is doing. For the father loves the son and what? How do you know that? Because he shows him all things that he himself is doing. There are no secrets, no hidden agendas, no attitudes, no motives that are awry in God. Everything is of love and for love. The son's love is shown, remember, in verse 19, as he does what the father shows him. So you see the absolute loving reciprocal activity of relationship within the Godhead. And that's how we are to be functioning within the church. You see, God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one. Why? Because each equal divine person lovingly functions in a particular role. Love causes the roles to function in godliness. If any of these roles or any of these relationships, which we've talked about this morning, is a difficulty for you, the problem is your love of God. May I repeat that? If any of us have difficulty in any of these relationships or any of these issues between or among ourselves, the problem is our love for God. It's not the other person. You go to God. You go to God. God's the problem here. Your relationship with Him. Your feelings of, oh no, I love God. I just can't stand her. And John says what? If you say you love God, whom you don't know, and you hate your brother, what does he call you? Say it again. You're a liar. Oh, I like that. I like no equivocation in the apostle of God. You're a liar. And you know who's calling you a liar? God himself is through John. See, this is the love that God so passionately desires to display through us. This love. The love in the community of the Trinity. For God so loved the world. Remember that? But God being rich in mercy because of His great love. What love? Well, He loves me. He loves me. He loves us. Well, yes. But that's not the love. Essentially, the essentialness of the love is the love of the Godhead expressed among the persons of the Trinity and now shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You see, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.3, or 5.5, I think it is. 
the more excellent way, you remember, in 1 Corinthians 13. The fruit of the Spirit is love in Galatians 5.22. See what love the Father has bestowed upon us, 1 John 3.1. For God is love, 1 John 4.8. And then this most incredible statement of all, I think. John chapter 17, verse 26, the end of Jesus' prayer. That the love that God has for Jesus is the same love that He has for us. And that will blow you away. You see, that's why John writes what he does in 1 John 4, 7 to 12. And you might want to take a moment later on to read that. Because he's instructing the church in their relationships. And that relationship activity and context and atmosphere and power is God's love. The love of the Father for the Son, the reciprocal love of the Son to submit to the Father's leadership. And that's the love, that pure, unadulterated, holy, powerful, passionate, particular love that causes God to be one being as He's three persons. That's the love that we are to be exercising and seeking for and developing and spurring one another on in the church to be experiencing. How can we live this way? Because you see, the Holy Spirit lives in us. We have the Holy Spirit. John 5, Romans 5, 6, I already said that the love of God has been poured out or shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. First Peter, remember I already said that, that we have been granted everything pertaining to life and godliness. Why should we live this way? Because living this way is the truth about God. Amen? Living this way is the truth about God. Remember this word in John? John 13, 34 to 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you should also love one another. By this will all men know that you belong to me, that you're mine, by the love that you have for one another. It's not toleration love. It's not required love. It's the very love of God Himself that He has within Himself, about Himself, that is now shed abroad in us. I thought there was something wrong there. Shed abroad in us, And is now manifesting who God is and how God is. So how should we live? Philippians 2, 12, 17. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed in my presence, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Well, I'm left out on that one. That knocked me out right there. That you may prove or demonstrate yourselves to be blameless and innocent children, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Why? So that in the day of Christ I may have caused the glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. This is the will of God for us. So let's examine our hearts. Second Corinthians, Paul tells the church in verse 5 of chapter 13, examine yourselves. What is my personal 
life saying about the nature and character of God? What are my relationships saying about God? What is my marriage saying about God? How my husband and I relate? How we interact? Our attitudes, our motives. What is it saying about God? This is the issue. God is the issue. Am I experiencing a lack of unity in any relationship? No matter what the other person has done or said is not the issue. It's what I do in response that is the issue in my life. I must, under all circumstances and in all activities, be faithful to declare the truth about my God. That's what we're called to do. Let's ask God to evaluate our relationships. How are we doing in this area? This week, ask Him. This week, be attuned and sensitive. Ask for grace to repent. If you've been revealed sin in you and you're going to get sin in If you didn't get sin revealed to you, you're either not asking God or some kind of way not listening. Amen? Ask for the grace of repentance. We're needed. And when God shows you and gives you the grace of repentance, then this is going to be a theological bomb on you. After you see your sin and you go to God and ask Him for repentance, stop sinning. Remember what Jesus told the paralyzed man? He says, get up, take up your pallet and walk. And he says, behold, you become well. Don't sin anymore so that nothing worse will befall you. He said, just don't sin. Let's stop living a lie in whatever category. And let's begin to be the people of God's nature and of God's character in our relationships and our personal lives, publicly and privately. Let's show that our God is God. What's the result of it? Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11. Wherefore also God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and has given him a name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, what? What? Say it again. Every knee shall bow of things in the heavens, things on the earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is equal, one, and submitted to God the Father for the glory of God Himself. Amen? That's critical. This is what we're called to do and how we're called to live. Amen. Amen. Finish. Thank <clears throat> you.